In the third vision of Revelation, there are two invitations. The first invitation is to join in a wedding feast. Now, to fully understand this invitation, we have to kind of understand some of Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism is what scholars use to reference the time period where Jesus and John was alive. All right? So when the New Testament was being written, it was being written in a culturally influenced Second Temple time period. That's why it's called the Second Temple. So anytime you hear me say, use the term Second Temple Judaism, it's just a reference to the time where Jesus was alive. So during that time, there were certain cultural norms that, that uh, were involved in a marriage and a wedding. It, would, it was a really a three-part process. The first part was the, uh, the couple would be engaged. Now, we say the term engaged. Some of your translations, when you look at like uh, Matthew 1, where it's talking about uh, Joseph and Mary, it uses the word betrothed. I kind of like that term a little bit better. Uh, our culture doesn't know a whole lot about what that means, so we use the term engaged, but it's not quite engaged because they were actually married. They were legally married, and they would be married for about a year. So this explains why when uh, Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, he decides he will divorce her. Well, if you're just engaged, you don't have to get divorced. When you're legally married, you have to get divorced. So they would be legally married for an entire year, and yet they haven't consummated the, wedding, the, the marriage yet, and they haven't moved in together. So they're legally married for a year. They haven't consummated it yet. And during that year, both the bride and the groom prepare themselves. The groom goes back to his house, and he prepares a place for his new family. Typically, this would be on his father's property. He would build a house. He would build a place. He would prepare a place for his new family to enter. This shines some light on when Jesus in John 14 says, I go to prepare a place for you. He's saying, hey, look, I'm the bridegroom, you're the bride, I'm going back to my father's house, we are legally married, going back to my father's house to prepare a place for you. You're mine. That's what he's saying in John 14. And then we see throughout the New Testament, there is bride talk of the church. The church is his bride. We are to prepare ourselves. So there's a, there's a waiting period where Jesus prepares a place. The second part of the process in this wedding, or in this marriage, I should say, is the processional. So when the end of the year was up, when the place has been prepared, when the bride is ready, the husband goes and gets his bride. And he would go to her house, and he would Bring, he would lead the processional, a huge parade, a celebration back to his house. In fact, in Jewish culture, it was rude to stumble upon this procession and not partake because it was such an enormous celebration. They recognized that marriage was full of love and hope, and those are two things to celebrate. In fact, we see cultures all over the world throughout the history of humanity celebrating the love and commitment and hope that marriage produces. There was a recent story going around about a, a couple in Ukraine that met on the battlefield and decided to get married. 
Why does that make the round? Why does that story go viral? There's plenty of other stories happening in that war. I think it's because it produces hope. That even in the midst of war, there is hope. Marriage produces hope. The commitment between a man and a woman to love each other through it all. Till death do us part. And not just the commitment, but the idea that it's going to produce a family. That life will go on. God gave us marriage as a way to show hope. And so, in the Jewish culture, you wanted to participate in that celebration. That celebration of hope. So it would be a big celebration, a big parade, from her house to the place where he has prepared for her. So much so that if you were a stranger, you didn't even have to know the couple, and that procession came in front of you, you were expected to join. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Like, think about wedding crashers, you know? Like, nobody wants a wedding crasher coming and eating cake for free, right? And in that culture, it's like, no, come on, let's celebrate this. Let's throw down with a party, because this is amazing. There's a couple weddings coming up. I don't think they're going to be inviting wedding crashers. But it's still something to celebrate. So they would go back to his house, and then that enters the third phase. And the third phase is there would be a feast. Now, we usually have a wedding, and sometimes there's like snacks afterwards. Sometimes there's an entire meal. You know, sometimes there's a celebration for an hour, maybe two hours. If it's a real party, you might go three, right? They would go for days at a time. This feast wouldn't just be one meal. They would continue the party because they recognized what an amazing thing marriage is that God has given us. This proclamation of love, this proclamation of hope. So they would party for days at a time. So that's the first invitation that we're going to look at today, is a wedding invitation, a symbol of hope. The next invitation that we're going to see isn't quite an invitation as much as a summons. I don't know how many of you have ever been summonsed before. But it's not a celebration. It's not a time of hope. If you've ever got a summons to court, it's anxiety-producing. If you've ever got a summons from the IRS saying, you're about to get audited, you're not like, yes, let's celebrate that. Time to party, guys. The same thing's going on with this summons. It's not a celebration. And the two will be contrasted. So that's what we'll study today as we continue our series, Hopeful, a study through Revelation. We're up to Revelation 9. Turn with there, if you will. Revelation's 19, I should say. I said 9, didn't I? I mean 19. All right, so Revelation 19. If you remember, this is the third vision. It is three out of four visions found in the book of Revelation. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you 
his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roaring of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's a pretty gruesome, gruesome ending there, but I think we can unpack it a little bit. So let's start off. After this, so last week... We, uh, we looked at the funeral songs that the merchants, the kings, and the seafarers sang over Babylon. So if you remember, Babylon is, is coming into destruction, and the kings and the merchants and the seafarers who had grown wealthy off of Babylon, who cared more about their own comfort and more about their own wealth than they did about their fellow man, were grieving over Babylon, not because they cared for Babylon, but because they cared for their own wealth, they cared for their own comfort. And then it ends with, uh, uh, there will be no more trumpeters, no more craft, no more mill. So basically it comes down to there's going to be no more celebrations in Babylon, there's going to be no more economy in Babylon, there's going to be no more bridegroom and bride, there will be no more sounds of celebration in Babylon. So after all this, after he sees and hears of the destruction, and he sees and hears the funeral songs, the people grieving, 
then he hears contrasted with the hallelujah. So we see two different opinions of Babylon the Great's fall. The one is grieving over their own comforts, over their own luxuries, and the other is rejoicing. So hallelujah is just a joyful praise of God. That's what hallelujah means. When you shout out hallelujah, you're joyfully praising God. That's what it means. So they say hallelujah, they joyfully praise God, and then they give him salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Salvation literally means deliverance. And in this context, it is deliverance from judgment. So you can be delivered from all kinds of things. Throughout Scripture, we see salvation coming from God, and salvation sometimes is physical deliverance. When, and say, uh, when Saul was chasing after King David, he wasn't king yet, but he, you know, David, being chased by Saul, God delivers him from the hands of Saul. That's salvation. That's physical salvation. But there's spiritual salvation. And in this case, it is deliverance from judgment. This is important for us to recognize because salvation was offered to all mankind. Everyone was offered salvation. Those who are singing funeral songs for Babylon the Great rejected rejected the salvation that was offered to them. God offered them deliverance from the coming judgment, and they rejected it. So this is salvation. Those who accepted the deliverance from judgment can look at God and say salvation comes from Him. You cannot deliver yourself from God's judgment. There's no amount of good works you can do. There's no amount of spiritual praise. There's no amount of helping someone else out. Those are good things, but there's no amount of that you can do to save yourself. The only thing that will deliver you from God's future judgment is Christ. And so when you put your faith and trust in Christ, He delivers you from the upcoming judgment. But it's not just salvation that belongs to God. It's also glory and power. Glory is high status. In Babylon the Great, what we also have been calling the world system, there is a fight for high status. We see it play out through our culture all the time. We see it even play out in churches where people want to become you know, super cool. They want to have some kind of high status. They want to have some kind of high ranking. Sometimes people walk, I just think about like high school where like kids walk into a classroom and automatically start trying to figure out the pecking order. That's Babylon the Great. That's where we think we can have high status. But in God's system of grace, there is no pecking order. There is no status that we can try to grasp. It's not, I'm holier than thou. It's God is holier than thou, and we are all even. Sometimes people look at a pastor or missionaries, and they think, oh man, they must be really righteous and holy. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you are just as holy as the holiest missionary. You are just as holy as the holiest pastor. You are just as righteous. God has leveled the playing field among humanity. From the prostitute who just gave her life to Christ last night to the missionary that has dedicated her entire life to God, they are both the same amount of holy and righteous 
because it is God's righteousness and God's holiness that he has placed upon them. Therefore, we are equal. The only one with high status is God. And the rest of us can look at God and say, he deserves it. We don't. So not only is it glory, his high status, but also power. And this is controlling influence. Once again, in Babylon the Great, we, we try to uh, obtain more controlling influence. Some people will spend like $44 billion to get more uh, controlling influence. Some people will just try to get elected for more controlling influence. With God's system, it's recognizing that he is the sovereign, the one and only true controlling influence. So salvation, glory, and power belong to God. And then he gives us a four. The four always gives us the why, right? For his judgments are true and just. Judgments here means legal decisions. Oftentimes we get confused about judgments or judging. This here is a reference specifically to legal decisions. God can make legal decisions, and why can he make perfect legal decisions? We can look through our legal system, and I, I appreciate our legal system. I think we've got a very good legal system, but as good as our legal system is, even if we made the best legal system that humanity can make, it would still be flawed, because we're flawed. But God's legal decisions are not flawed. His legal decisions are true and just. So we may look at a flawed legal system here, but we can know and we can trust that in the end, God will right all the wrongs. Any wrong that has been created here on earth, God will right. His legal judgments are true and just. True means fact-based. That which is rooted in reality. God is the author of reality. Not only is the author, but he is the sustainer. By him, all things were created, and he holds all things together. He is the one single most authoritative source on truth. You and I are limited in our ability to discern truth. We're limited by our senses. Sometimes two people will see the exact same thing, but because their eyes differ, they will interpret it in different ways. So if you've ever had a discussion with someone who is colorblind about colors, you will notice that somebody's observation on what is true is hindered by their sense of sight. Uh, I don't know if I'm colorblind, but I know I don't see colors very well. I have a brother-in-law who is a screen printer. He knows colors that I didn't even dream, couldn't even dream of. And he will like look at a color and be able to tell you the exact name of a color that like, to me, I'm like, that's gray. And he's got some weird name. That's gray. He's got another weird name. Oh, that's gray. Jen, sometimes when we go to paint the house, she's got like five different types of black. And I'm like, that's all black. No, it's, these, this is a certain type. No, that's black to me. So I'm hindered. My uh, observations of reality, what is true, is hindered by my sense of sight. And the same goes for you too. Even the person with the most keenest sense of sight still can't see as accurately the different colors as God can. And then you multiply that by all of our different senses. And we can realize that we, we cannot get a firm grasp on reality and truth 
simply because of our senses. But beyond that, we even have limited brain capacity. And our limited brain capacity also hinders us from being able to, to get the precision in on truth. But God is not limited. God is the author of truth. He is the creator of reality. So therefore, if we want to know truth, we have to turn towards God to know truth. He is the author of truth. So his judgments, his, his judicial decisions, his legal decisions are truth. They're truth-based. We can trust them more so than I can trust my own decisions. Have you been caught up in one of the big lawsuits or big courtroom decisions over the past year or so? And you see two sides arguing it out. Now, some sides fall on that side just because they're in rebellion. Other people fall on another side simply because they have a hard time calculating or processing all of the information. God doesn't have that difficulty. God knows truth. Therefore, his judgments are true. And not only are his judgments true, but his judgments are just. Just here means ethically and morally correct. God is always ethically and morally correct. He knows what is true, he knows what is real, and he knows how to always make the ethically and morally correct decision. So some people have a struggle with God's wrath. Some people struggle with the end of chapter 19 where, it, where the birds are gorging on the flesh of humans. Some people have struggle with the Old Testament where we see Richard Dawkins calls God an egotistical, megalomaniac, genocidal. The problem with Richard Dawkins and those who are judging God of the Old Testament, who is the same God of the New Testament, who is the same God who calls the birds to eat the man's flesh, the problem that we have is we think we've got a corner on truth and justice. We think we are always morally and ethically correct. But we don't see things the way God sees them. God has a bigger picture than we do. God has an eternal picture, and he knows more than we know, and yet we have the audacity to look at God and say, God, you're wrong. Um, excuse me, God. I don't think you actually quite understand what's going on here. God understands more than you can ever know. He is the author of truth, and he is always morally and ethically correct. It kind of reminds me of uh, driving with my kids. Do you, any of you have kids that try to correct your driving? Sometimes it's cute. Sometimes it's infuriating. My brother, when we were, I was three years old, he was five years old, we were sent to uh, be with my grandparents for uh, two weeks in Kansas. He's a five-year-old. We get in the car because my grandparents are driving us home. We live in Colorado, an entire state away. He spent two weeks in Kansas. He's never driven a car in his life. He gets in the car, and my grandpa starts driving, and he says, hey, where are you taking us? My grandpa says, taking you home. And he says, are you sure? Yeah, I'm taking you home. And he looks at my grandpa, and he goes, if you are, you're going the wrong way. Kind of cute, right? Could be a little infuriating if, we keep, if he kept on doing it the whole way. We have the audacity to be like that with God, but on a much greater level. We think we know. We try to correct God. And yet, 
We just don't know. So his judgments are true and just. And then he gives us an example. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So they see that God's judgments are true. They see that God's judgments are just. And they celebrate God's judgment. They celebrate the destruction of Babylon. We struggle sometimes with that. Once again, because we struggle with trusting that God's judgments are true and God's judgments are just. And we think in our arrogance that we know better. So we struggle with his destruction of Babylon, not understanding the full problem. But in the end, there will be a celebration of God's judgment. There will be a celebration of God's justice. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped. This is kind of uh, redundant here. It's virtually synonymous. Uh, falling down and worshipping. Worship is to prostrate yourself in front, of, in front of someone as an act of submission. So th- what they're saying is he, they fall down as an act of submission, and then they worship falling down, prostrating themselves as an act of submission. They recognize, these elders and these four living creatures, recognize who God is and who they are. That God is the one worthy of praise. That God is the one worthy of controlling influence over their life. That they have totally failed in their ability to call the shots in their own life. So they say, hey, I'm done rebelling against you, God. I submit it all to you. I hand over control to you. God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And so they fall down, they worship, and this amen, amen simply means to agree. When our kids learn that after prayers, they would just start saying, I agree, instead of amen. But that's what it means, is I agree. And what they're doing is reaffirming these hymns, reaffirming that God's judgments are true and just, that God's judgment on Babylon the Great and the great prostitute are true and just, and reaffirming that we should be celebrating God's justice and God's judgment. So they fall down and they call with a voice, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So this is a call to praise, a call uh, to speak or sing of the excellence of someone. The someone will be God. So they're calling everyone to sing of the excellence of God. All you who are servants. So who is called to praise? Those who are servants. The term servant here is doulos. It means slaves. So all who recognize that Jesus is master. There is a fight, an internal fight that we struggle with, of letting Jesus be the master, letting Jesus have control, or having control ourselves. Most of the time, when you are struggling with some type of sin, if you trace the roots back, it's because you are trying to be the master, not being a servant or a slave to God. 
Now, what's interesting is we say slave. I think indentured servant or indentured slave is kind of a better description here. So, uh, you know, when we think of slave, we think of someone who was sold into slavery, never having any control over their life. This is actually a reference to someone who recognized that their life would be better off as a slave for whatever reason, and so they sold themselves into slavery. That's the idea that we're drawing on here. So, so this is a call to praise God, all who recognize that they shouldn't be master of their own lives. Instead, they should hand control over to God. So going back to that inter- internal struggle that we all have, have you ever said something along the lines of, he made me so mad? So-and-so, I can't believe him, he made me so mad. He didn't make you mad. He challenged an idol in your life and therefore revealed the anger that you have in your own heart. He didn't make you mad. He gave you an opportunity to let the anger in your heart come out because you're still trying to be control or you're still trying to be the master of your own life. So next time someone says, he made me so mad, just think to yourself, don't judge him. But next time you say, he made me so mad, question yourself. Did this person really make me mad? Or did he give me an opportunity to let the anger that was already in my heart out? So it's a call to all who are are servants or slaves who fear him, you who fear him. This is all who give reverence and recognize who he is as the creator of the world and who we are as the creation. So it's a call to all who, who call themselves slaves, and it's a call to all who fear or give him reverence, small and great. And the small and great there is to emphasize that it is a call to all. Then I heard what seemed to be a vo- the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. So we had just looked at the hallelujahs that were contrasting those who were grieving over Babylon and those who were celebrating God's justice. Now we're going to look at uh, the, the scene changes from the contrast to that to uh, people singing praises or hallelujah switches from celebration of God's judgment to God's rule. So we're no longer looking back at the judgment. Now we're looking at a celebration of God's ruling authority. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The term marriage here literally means wedding. So let's think back to the three phases of marriage for a second temple Jew. You are already the bride. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you are considered his bride. You're legally married. Some of the teenage boys might think, man, I'm not a bride. Come on. You're a bride. There's imagery there. I'm not saying you're a girl at all, but we are the bride of Christ. So the, the betrothal has already happened. Now we're on to the feast. So this is the feast. So we've got the betrothal. We've got the procession. We're up to the feast at this point. So the wedding feast of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's you and me, that is the church, has made herself 
ready. So, this is the marriage supper. It's contrasted with uh, chapter 18 and Babylon the Great that will no longer have celebrations, no longer have marriage. It's also contrasted with the great prostitute. The great prostitute clothes herself in luxury, clothes herself in luxury. The great prostitute seduces others. The great prostitute lives in rebellion against God. Have you ever felt like that's more of you? Sometimes we struggle with viewing ourselves as the bride of Christ. But instead, we look at all of the ways we've messed up, we look, at, we look at all of the rebellion that we've had, and we think, I'm no bride. I'm not deserving of being a bride. Instead, I fall in line with the prostitute. And if that is you, I have to say, welcome to the party. There's not a single one of us that at some point in our life hasn't looked more like the prostitute than the bride. There's not a single one of us that hasn't some point in our life shaken our fist at God in rebellion. But we are called the bride of Christ now. And we are told to be made ready. So how do we make ourselves ready. I think verse 8 is the answer. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So, if you've been living as a prostitute, and you've come to put your faith and trust in Christ, you are now called the bride of Christ. And how do you make yourself or clothe yourself with fine linen, bright and pure? And the answer is, it was granted her. Jesus has granted you this clothing. Bright and pure represents victory and purity. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, he no longer saw you as part of the great prostitute, but he sees you now as his bride, and he is the one who has clothed you with purity. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that some were prostitutes, and he gives a whole list of different sins that you and I have probably struggled with. And then he says, but that is what you were. Now you have been made pure and righteous and holy. No matter what you have done, no matter where you have been in life, no matter how bad you've rebelled and messed things up, no matter how bad you have sinned against other people, God has called you pure and holy and righteous if you've put your faith and trust in Him. Because He makes you that way. So then what are we to do? If God's already made us pure and holy and God has already given us the clothing of fine linen, then he calls us to righteous deeds. Not that we would earn our salvation, not that we would earn the purity or the righteousness or the victory, but that we recognize that the victory and the purity is already provided for us through Christ. 
So this is how we mature in Christ. This is how we grow in the holiness that he has placed upon us. It is by recognizing who he has declared us to be. And when we recognize who he has declared us to be, then we start to produce the works. It's not that I work for my righteousness, it's that God has already placed righteousness on me, therefore I am free to do the works. And that way, when I mess up, I don't have to go to the dark room of shame again. How many of you have struggled with the dark room of shame? You know, you're working really hard, you're doing the holy, righteous thing, and then you totally blow it. That sin that always draws you back, drew you back, you totally blew it, you shook your fist at God, you totally feel shameful, and so you run into a dark room of shame until you can come back out. That's not the way God operates. God doesn't say, go to your room until you can can confess your sin and work hard enough to come back out. God says, I've done it for you already. I've already made you pure. I've already made you holy. All you have to do is recognize it. And when you recognize it, then you're equipped to do the work. The problem with shame and the dark room of shame is that it is a never-ending cycle. When I feel shame, I run to something, oftentimes a sin, that numbs my shame. And God's calling you to come out of that cycle. You run to shame, or you run to something that covers your shame, that makes you feel shamed. So what do you do? You run to that same thing that numbs you to that shame. God's saying, come out of the cycle. Recognize that I've made you holy and pure and just. You no longer need to feel that shame anymore. So that's what's going on here. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed or highly favored, are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So all are called to believe, for God so loved the world. All are called to simple faith. But not all are invited to the marriage supper. Only those who believe, only those who have put their faith and trust in Christ are invited. Because if you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, you're not part of the bride. You're not part of the body of Christ, which is the bride. So you're not invited. The invitation is really easy to get. Put your faith and trust in Christ, and you're invited. And blessed or highly favored are those who are invited. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship. I think what's happening here is John has just gotten so swept up in the moment, so caught up in this this, uh, culture of worship, that he just can't help himself. He wants to worship. I think all of us have been designed by God to worship. And if we're not worshiping God, we will worship something. If you don't worship God, you will worship something, whether it's yourself or someone else or something else. You're going to worship. So we're designed to worship. He gets caught up in the moment and says, hey, I just got to worship. So he falls down at his feet to worship this angel. And the angel's response is, you must not do that. Hey, the only thing deserving of worship The only thing deserving of total submission in your life is God. And then he says, I am a fellow servant. This shows us that worship of angels is not okay. Angels are fellow servants. We are all servants, or the actual word here is sundulos, which is fellow slave. We are all fellow slaves of God, including the angels. Remember, there is no hierarchy with God. Even the angels all submit and follow 
God. So the, if, you, if you wanted to get like an exact hierarchy, it would be God, the rest of the creation. With you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, that's written in an objective genitive, uh, and it could be translated more along the lines of when we keep the testimony of Jesus, the Spirit is working in us just as the Spirit was working with the prophets. That's kind of, I think, a more clear way to think of it. It's, uh, it's just that when we keep the testimony, the Spirit's working in us. Then he goes on. Then I saw heaven opened up. So he's going to continue in this vision, and heaven opening up signifies God in history. We have a God who enters into human history. He has entered into human history in the past. He came in the flesh. He is a historical God. We can look at the history of humanity and we can see his fingerprints in humanity and he will enter into history again. So heaven opened up and behold, a white horse. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, it was Palm Sunday and we looked at Jesus coming in on a donkey. He was riding on a donkey, right? And we saw that that riding on a donkey, when kings rode on a donkey, it signified a time of peace. So that was Jesus revealing that he was here to offer peace between God and man, that there had been enmity between God and man, that there was a a clash between God and man because of our own rebellion. And Jesus was here to offer peace, to reconcile humanity and God. But here he is riding a white horse, and that white horse signifies war. When kings rode white or horses, it was because it was wartime. So there was a time when God offered peace. He gave us the invitation to believe. For those who were still in rebellion, there will be war. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. So we've got seven uh, characteristic descriptions of Jesus, and then we've got four actions. So faithful and true. Can we go to the slide? So faithful and true is a contrast with the beast who was deceptive and breaks oaths. So Jesus, we've already talked about how he is the authoritative source on truth. He holds truth. He creates truth. And he is faithful to that truth. And he is faithful to his covenants. He is a faithful God. Contrasted with the beast who was using deception and manipulation to get people to worship him. And he was willing to break oaths. So not only is he faithful and true, but he's also righteous. Righteous means that he's always morally correct. God is always morally correct. His eyes are like a flame of fire. This means that he can discern all. We cannot fool God. We can fool each other. I'm easily fooled. If you don't want to tell me the truth, you know what? You got me fooled. It's not that difficult. My kids play pranks on me. It's fairly easy. Jen plays pranks on me. Fairly easy. But God is not easily fooled. You cannot fool God. Some of you are still trying to fool God, thinking that he owes you something, thinking that he won't see past your manipulation and your deception. God is all discerning. You cannot fool him. So you might as well be honest with him now. On his head are many diadems. 
So there's two types of crowns throughout Revelation. There's Stephanos, which is an earned crown. Those 24 elders that sit around the throne of God, we see that they earned this crown, and at some point they're going to take the crown off and they're going to toss it to God. Because all of our works are something that we just give to God anyways. This is not that. These are diadems. They are crowns of authority. Something that cannot be earned, but it just is. Now, if you remember back to chapter 17 and uh, the second vision as well, we saw the dragon and the beast, and they tried to have their own diadems. And what that signifies is that they were trying to usurp the authority of God. But here, the emphasis is on the many crowns, meaning there is no one with greater authority. God has all the authority and sovereignty. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. So in ancient, or in antiquity, uh, names had meaning. Uh, Some people still name their kids with meaning. Some people don't have a whole lot of history, and so they're like, yeah, that name sounds great. We'll go ahead and name them that. And oftentimes, I mean, you don't even know your kid. You don't know the character of your kid. Sometimes we look back and we think Henry should have been named Frank because my dad's name is Frank, and my dad is very mechanically inclined. Henry's a lot like my dad. We should have named him that. But too bad, he got named Henry. Why did we name him Henry? That's a cool-sounding name, right? That's not how it was in antiquity. In antiquity, the names had meaning. And so what this is saying is that there is a very essence or a meaning behind this name, and God hasn't revealed it yet. And so it's kind of this cool idea that, okay, so God hasn't fully revealed himself. We have his word, which is trustworthy. We have him entering history, which is awesome. But we can't fully see God. But at the end of time, he will fully reveal himself. Not only that, but we see in the first vision, in chapter 2, to the letters to the churches, he says that he will give us that name as well. So not only does he have a name that no one quite understands yet, that his full essence isn't yet known, but at the end times, he's going to give that over to us as well. How cool is that? That you will, at the end of time, be fully known and fully loved. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. There's a little debate about what blood this is. Some people, some theologians think that this is the blood Uh, of the enemies, the blood of Babylon the Great. Others think that this is the victorious blood of his own on the cross. So this would be the blood that he produced on the cross that produces victory. I lean more towards that, uh, but you're free to do whatever you want with it. and And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So it is the very truth of God, and in this particular instance, it is the execution of the judgment that Jesus will execute the judgment that God will bring upon Babylon the Great and the prostitute. And the armies of heaven, now we're going to get into four different actions that Jesus has. Uh, So the first one is that he judges and makes war. So because he is faithful and because he is true, he will make war on the rebellion. He must make war on rebellion. He must make war on those who uh, lie. He must not let lies stand forever. So he will make war because he is faithful and true. He also has a sharp sword, sorry, sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And so how will he execute 
this judgment and war, it will be with this sharp sword. The sharp sword in Roman times represented authority over life and death. So he will have authority over life and death. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. The rod of iron is a reference to a shepherd's crook. And it shows that he will shepherd. And there are two parts to shepherding. There is shepherding the flock, but that is also used as defense. So he will use that shepherd's crook as a defense for the bride of Christ. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. So he will put down all of the rebellion. And then on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a direct reference to Caesar, who claimed to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what he's saying is, no, God is really the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And so we've got this summons to the birds to come eat. And he is so sure of his victory that he's sending out the invitation before the war even happens. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against them who sit on the horse and against his army. So if you remember all the way back in the second vision, the sixth trumpet, this is where the war of Armageddon comes. When the kings of the earth, or the rulers of the earth, gather all the armies to declare war on God. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive. The, emphasis, the alive emphasizes the horror of the punishment into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth. So this sword that, will, that comes from the mouth doesn't just represent his authority over life and death, but it is also how he executes his authority over life and death. Now most theologians think that this war happens instantaneously. We don't have a description of the war. He does bring his armies with him, but I don't think those armies actually participate in the war. In the war. They're not there to fight. They're there to witness the awesome power of God, and all he does is open his mouth. And when he opens his mouth, with the authority over life and death, all who are in rebellion against him will die. And all the birds were gorged on their flesh. And this is, in Second Temple Judaism, the ultimate disrespect. They weren't buried, but their flesh was left for the wild birds to come and feast upon. So you are invited. You are either, you, ha, you have to answer one of the invitations. You are either invited to the marriage feast, a great celebration. And all you have to do is put your faith and trust in Christ. Or you will be summoned. You will be summoned to the judgment of the one who is righteous and true, whose judgments are always just, who will open his mouth and instantaneously will kill all who are in rebellion against him. Which invitation will you accept? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that you have given us a way out of this judgment, that you have given us deliverance from this judgment. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to share the gospel so that others would be delivered as well. In your name we pray. Amen.